Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Aubrey Pagano, who founded the fashion brand Bowen Drape in 2012 before selling it in 2019. She is now a general partner at venture capital firm Alpaca VC, which specializes in high-growth, tech-infused companies. I wanted to ask Aubrey about the decision to sell her company and about the type of businesses and founders she deems worthy of investment in 2021. Welcome, Aubrey. Thanks for having me, Jill. It's nice to be back talking to you. It's fun now as an investor. (laughs) It's so good to see you. I mean, I feel like we have so much to discuss. This will be meaty. This will be beefy. (laughs) Let's circle back to 2012, founding Bowen Drape started on Kickstarter. Am I correct? Yes. Tell me about the opportunity that you saw in fashion at the time, because oh I definitely want to compare it to right now. Yeah, the juice. So um, at the time, we were super excited about creating more personal, expressive fashion. And we looked out over the landscape. And at the time, very much were focused on millennials who were sort of the young generation uh, and wanted customization. We said we see customization at Subway, at Chipotle, at the time was still very popular, um, and said, why doesn't that exist in in fashion that is not like a screen-printed t-shirt? There has to be something that's better. And so we set out to be a place where people could come and customize fashion and make it very expressive and fun and show their personality started, am I correct? that It was more like dresses, like the gold digger sweatshirt that I know and love and have. I know Serena Williams has it too. That's why I kind of love it more. But um, (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't the the original idea, correct? No, you're, you are so right. So, um, and also that gold digger sweatshirt, uh, Serena told me she wore on her first date with Alexis, which is my most fun fact probably about bone drape. Um, That's the most fun. (laughs) But we did, you're so right. So when I say we were really focused on expression, we were really focused on where do we start? And at the time, we actually surveyed our customers and it was pre the Kenzo sweatshirt and tech and all of these factors driving people toward more comfortable Uh, casual fashion. And so we started out with dresses, with workwear, with occasion wear, with dresses for bridesmaids, for, uh, we had people wear them to the Met Gala. Um, And so very much we're about customization, but started out, you know, working in the garment district to create custom fashion and then uh, launched our sweatshirt that became kind of our eponymous product uh, after that. What was your own approach to fundraising? I know that you grew the the brand to profitability, eight figure revenue. Which, I mean, this is no easy feat for sure. Uh, was it? Gosh, did, were you slow and steady in terms of uh, the money you were bringing in? Uh, cautious to to go big. I'd say two things. So one, it was harder for us to raise venture capital, especially at the time that we were raising. I was going out to Silicon Valley, pre-Me Too, going to Sand Hill Road. Oftentimes the only woman that I would see uh, within earshot was the woman getting me coffee. Um, And it was very hard at the time to get a majority of men, you know, uh, largely white investors to understand why millennials would want more customizable fashion and sparkly sweatshirts. It just was not <laughs> the the demo that they were used to backing. And so for that reason, it was hard amid all the other factors that were going on at the time. 
Additionally, though, I think we really early on, and this is something that I've talked about since investing, you know, as a founder, you kind of, you're at the best spot to see where your company is going. Founders know where their company is heading six months or a year before anyone else does. And we saw the tides in brands where we were like, you just can't scale forever. We were like, acquisition breaks online. You can't just raise money and just acquire as much people as possible. Fundamentally, how does that business get valued at the end of the day? And so we started to ask ourselves those questions. So it made a very... Um, the combination of those two things, we said, okay, it's going to be hard to raise from like dudes in Silicon Valley. And also, even if we do raise, like what's our end game? So let's try and get this company profitable. And so we actually raised a lot more debt than equity in the end to fund inventory so that we wouldn't use up our equity for inventory cycles. Um, and so we're, you know, I think there's a lot of smart brands now that loop that into their fundraising journey. Um but but was a very concerted decision after our uh, seed, and we had a pre-A round as well. But we didn't actually end up going out for A. We ended up raising debt and trying to get profitable instead, and then exited. So you had before, even before Bow and Drape, kind of a business analyst background. Who were the the partners that you brought in? Um, who was your team? What was needed to get the brand off the ground? I brought in my well, first and foremost, my best friend from undergrad. So my co-founder, Shelly Maddock, and she was the person at the time, you know, we were 25, 26 when we started the company. And so now you know how old I am. Um, But but, uh, we, she was the person that I knew with operations experience uh, and sales experience. She had a family who had worked in the garment industry and had been in their factories. And so was the person that I could touch and trust uh, that knew anything about it. So brought her in to really help do all the oper- operations, supply side stuff and customer service. Um, and then pretty early on, we needed some sort of creative direction and brand direction. And so um, brought on graphic designers. You know, I think for a brand, the sort of key pillars are you need someone to manage all the movement of goods and all the operations. You need someone creative who's managing all the creative assets. And then eventually you need someone who's who's managing growth. Um, and, and the marketing growth side of things. And so we tried to build those early on uh, as the pillars of the brand. Um, but but I will say it sounds a lot cleaner than it was. You know, it's my first startup. I was, like I said, in my mid-20s. And so there was lots of learnings. And at the time, there was not, you know, now there are so many resources and the friction is so much less to start a brand, which is amazing. Uh, but at the time, you know, it was, it was at least for me a lot trickier. So it was not as smooth as I'm making it sound. There were a lot of false starts, a lot of hires that didn't work out, sort of a rocky journey at the start to, to get it scaled. Do you have any anecdotes throughout the fundraising process? Uh, we hear, you know, a lot from female founders that heard like, let me go ask my wife or, and, and was that whole process a full-time job for you? Did it mean, um, yeah stepping away from the company a bit, striking the right balance, figuring all of that out. The hardest part about being an early stage company raising capital is that you are usually a half or a third of the capacity of the company. And as the founder, you have to go out and fundraise and that's a huge distraction. It typically takes, you know, six months, three to six months at least to raise that capital. And so you're really taken away from the business. Um, 
good advice I was given early on was that you should be spending your time either raising capital or hiring. Those are the two things that like a founder can do no more than anyone else. But at the same time, you're doing that and doing all the biz dev because everyone wants to talk to the founder. You're doing all the press because everyone wants to talk to the founder. So it's a it's a overwhelming to balance it all uh, to start and, and is a huge distraction. So I think that's one of the hardest parts about early stage is just the focus that it requires for the early team, as far as kind of being a Swiss army knife for these different functions that initially, you know, eventually will become full teams. Um, but it was, of course, it was, it was really challenging. I mean, I think beyond what I said, the, the best as my wife's story was a top five venture capital firm. One of the partners, uh, was a retail investor and asked his wife to try out the brand and to get feedback. And she was maybe my age, like so yeah. younger than him. And uh, we made her a full custom like wardrobe, basically, like overdid it and got on the phone with her to ask about feedback. She was like, well, you know, I really just like shop at Forever 21. Like, I don't really like buy stuff like this I was like oh my gosh oh my gosh <laughs> like, so this, we're talking to you <laughs> this is the end of one that we needed like <laughs> so it was, Lord, Lord. it was just you sort of like hit your head against the wall but that, that's to say like there are always those horror stories but there are also people who really get it and there are guys you know we yeah. had just as many male investors that like really got our business early on nice. um like the late Tony Shea like I think saw the vision and his whole team. Um, the guys at Great Oaks were early backers. So, um, and Andy is an old white guy and like totally got it. And so, um, nice. so I do think that it's about finding your people and your and sticking to your voice um, and just lots of no's before you get to it. I don't think it's impossible. You were able to set up this amazing experience in store at. Gosh, I'm trying to think where I shopped it. I don't know if it was Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom, but um, anyway, it just seems like your the bow and drape setup in store is what what retailers wanted. Like they wanted you to be able to come in, customize on the spot. You were like you were providing their experience, so I would think that you would be like a draw, and everybody would want something, want your brand in store. What was your your take on retailers and their value to the brand at the time? It was a really symbiotic opportunity at the time to enter into retail. And I think now we've also seen the evolution of brands that were traditionally DTC only getting into retail. I think the, the future of brands is really omni-channel. We've been talking about omni-channel for a long time, but I think it's going wherever your customers are, whether that's live commerce or retail or online through a traditional PVP. And so for us at the time, and this is like 2015, 2016, uh, you really started to see Wholesale Road where you saw online moving, you saw store traffic going down. And so retailers at the time were desperate to figure out how they could engage people in store and create something unique as an experience and a draw. Um, and at the time too, you know, folks like Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's were starting to experiment with bringing in newer up and coming brands alongside as an adjacency to their mainstays. And so for us, we it was a huge platform for us for acquisition and for them it was symbiotic because they got to keep people in store longer and uh they got to create this discovery platform and this experiential uh retail scape 
where customers could come in and, and sort of like Willy Wonka experience something different. So we always said we traded margin for exposure there where we got wholesale margin, you know, pricing structure, but it would have costed us as much, if not more, to acquire those folks online. Um, and so what we did, which you <laughs> accurately describe, is we were sort of like a Build-A-Bear for clothes in store where we'd have all these candy bins set up where people could pick out all their embellishments and baubles. And then we had an assortment of blanks that they could customize to their heart's content. We had idea books where people could flip through kind of like when you're at the salon and you needed to find your hairstyle. We had books of inspiration for ideas of what to design. And then uh, and then we designed our own text so that we could actually complete that product there. And we'd actually text you when the product was really ready. And so we had a whole, as you can imagine, all that needed to be like recorded and, and there needed to be a, a order management flow for that. So that was all custom retail tech that we built as well. So it was a lot of complexity, a lot of execution risk. Um, yeah. But at the time, I think, was an early example of how retailers were thinking about trying to set the bar for what in-store could be and, and how to keep people engaged. Was even your the staff that was uh, behind <laughs> Bow and Drape in-store, like I would think that would be totally different training than any other uh, store associate. How, do, how did you manage that or ensure that they were doing your brand justice, carrying this out <laughs> how it should be? Well, to start, it was us. I remember the first one, we flew our entire team out to Nordstrom, Seattle, and we're out running around trying to get it done all, I think there was maybe six or eight of us on the team at the time for our first one. Um, flew my sister out even, <laughs> my best friend came out, like my other best friend. So um, it was a family event. But then as we started to scale to, you know, 30 pop-ups all over the country and more, um, we actually built a, a world a world class training platform with the um, the woman who was in charge of building the Soul Cycle training platform. Actually helped us to build our own homegrown training platform. So we had very well produced videos um, and a whole training toolkit. We had a tool for, uh, where where every season when we wanted to pop up, we could easily spin up these these pop ups. But it was hard, you know. I think one of the challenges with it not being your own employees, because we a lot of times use retail staff within the store, um, is if you don't have the right incentive structure, it's hard to get them to align to your brand values and how, what you think of as performance indicators. So there was definitely a challenge there. Um, and, and as we scaled, we believed that the best way to create that experience was actually to hire those people in-house. But we experimented with how can we leverage existing retail staff as well to cut down on costs. Um, right on. So yeah, it was a, it was an interesting and challenging journey to kind of get that scaled. And again, a lot of homegrown tech that we needed to build for that. So interesting. Well, we got to get to what you're doing today, but I want to ask about your own, uh, with Bow and Drape, your own, um, owned stores. Was it more about pop-ups? Did you invest in, uh, permanent retail spaces? Why or why not? Great question. So, uh, part of the decision to sell was hand in hand with, do we open our own stores? And the next iteration for us was we saw on multiple floors, we were the best seller in terms of any kind of temple event. So at Nordstrom for Mother's Day, we did great for Bloomingdale's at holiday or Valentine's Day. And so we said, you know, event 
we've called it event-based retail, but we said that's going to be our future event-based retail where we can create, you know, in Charlestown, we experimented it or Charleston, sorry, North Carolina is a big bachelorette destination. So we experimented with a boutique down there where we would actually in advance let bridal parties like pre-book a sip champagne and make your swag for the weekend. And so we had all these early indicators that this kind of event-based retail was the direction that we wanted to move. And so we were gearing up to open five locations of our own around the country. Um, wow. The, the question that we posed to ourselves was, you know, is, is that going to make us more or less attractive to a potential acquirer? Because we are asset light right now. We have a lot of technology, but not a lot of overhead. Um, and so do we want to start these or not? And so it almost became a time question of, are we going to think about selling this company now and maybe hold off on stores? Or are we going to open stores, ride that for the next three to five years, and then think about that conversation? And so that was really the, the crux of it. Um, but it was definitely where we wanted to take the brand was was to these kind of experiential event-based retailing concepts. That makes sense. When did Win Brands Group come around? Did they <laughs> Were they seeking you out or are they? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. They came around actually. So, so the back, the back back story is uh, Kyle's last company, BVA, which was a marketing agency, was actually our marketing agency um, at one point. And so then they ended up selling the marketing agency. And Kyle was working on Kyle's the founder of Win Brands Group, which is a DTC holding company, uh, similar to Thoracio and Heyday and. Um, Kyle had started this concept, and as we had decided internally that we were going to sell for a variety of reasons. We uh, we got connected through someone at BVA. They said, hey, Kyle's starting this new thing. Do you want to talk to Kyle? And so we, Kyle was maybe my first conversation. Um, and I was sort of like, okay, like let's see what comes to fruition about what you're building. You know, I'm going to run my process. Um, and so then we ended up running our process with a banker, ended up getting between Kyle and there was one other firm that we were kind of going back and forth between. Um, and then the other firm, their board pulled out at the last moment, um, which was a, a PE backed company, which I've talked to other, there's a whole, you could do a whole podcast on like PE backed retailers and how much they screw around with acquisitions. Like I talked to another founder about this last week that another PE company pulled out at the last minute to try and drive down the price of her acquisition. Oh, There's lots of quirky. This is a thing? This is a thing oh. because they know they have the upper hand anyway. Um, yes. It's, it's, uh, it, yeah. And so, um, so we ended up, we ended up saying their board pulled it on, on second go around and we said, you know what, let's just, Kyle has been a great partner through this process. He's, we've had great conversations. We're very aligned in terms of where this could go. And so, ended up going with, with win, which was a, a great outcome. Yes. Well, I was creeping on your LinkedIn <laughs> and I saw this, that you said when I was making the very challenging decision to sell my company, one of my investors said, you're giving up. If you sell the company, real entrepreneurs don't give up. Talk to me. <laughs> oh, yes. You don't have to tell me who said this, but yeah. Um, I won't tell what, you. What is your it. take? Like, you don't have to justify why you're selling your company, first of all. But um, is that the attitude? Is that, did you feel the pressure? Like, am I making the right decision? People, did, do you care what people think? Do people think that? 
Ooh, those are all good, juicy questions. So <laughs> I try not to care overly what people think, but I, of course, am affected by what people think. Um, when you are selling your company, it is very important. Uh, you often have to get the consent of your current investors. Um, your board does. And so I went around and talked to all of my investors about where we were at, what I thought was the best decision for the company and ourselves. And that decision, the decision alone to sell the company took about four months and lots of number crunching. It was, in my opinion, the hardest decision we had to make as a company. Oh, yeah. And this was after almost eight years of running the company. Uh, after grinding it out, <laughs> I mean, that story about us all flying out to Nordstrom is like the tip of the iceberg of all the stuff that we did to kind of wrench this company to profitability and, and to where it got. Um, and so most investors had been along, you know, had been along for that journey and were like, yeah, you've been a good steward of capital. Like, I get it. Like, we'll back you again. Like, this makes sense. This one investor, <laughs> which is why I wrote about it had been along for the journey, I believe had known how hard we had worked and, and what a fiduciary I tried to be to my investors and sat across the table from me, saw me beleaguered and saying, this is, I think, the best option for us. And, and I think I want, you know, I want to sell it. I think anybody who wants to sell a company is like, it's a very interesting decision. Um, you know, I think when everything is going perfect, you don't want to sell the company. And so I think there's a lot that you can read between the tea leaves about where I was at. And so for me to sit across from someone beleaguered saying, I think the best decision is to sell it, even though I don't want to, like, this is where I'm at. For the, for the conversation back to be like, well, you're a shitty entrepreneur for giving up was like, it was a metaphorical slap in the face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... And so that's why, that's like the full context of why I thought that was such a ghastly thing to say, um, because that's not a real partner. <laughs> that's someone who, right. you know, it's one thing to say you need to look after your fiduciary responsibility for your investments and say, you know, I need to wrench value out of this investment no matter what. But if you trust your entrepreneurs and if you're a real partner to them, you know, you've been along the journey with them. And so, you know, when they've gotten to this decision, it's not an easy one. And so that to me was like, I was, my jaw dropped. I was like, I can't believe that that is what's coming out of your mouth. And um, it was a real point to me where I said, this has probably been said before to entrepreneurs. Like, <laughs> and there are really, yeah. there are really people out there who exist who I think just do bad business. And so it's like, if I ever have the chance to be on the other side of the table, my morals and the way that I think about long-term partnership and long-term relationships in the business and long-term investable capital, like are just different. Um, totally. And so got, I mean, you can tell even now, like fired up about it. <laughs> I would. How rude. <laughs> Beyond rude. It was like, right. it was such a low key rude thing to say. <laughs> yes, I would. Die. I would. Yeah. And I it was like said deadpan. It was like, Oh, well, you're just giving up then. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, if you're going to say that, at hope. least, yeah, at least say it with a little more gusto. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, you're speaking, I feel like you're speaking my language. I love, I love the kind of blood, sweat, tears, um, like running to the store, hands on. So when you're talking to um, founders, Aubrey, and yeah, is that what you look for? You look for somebody that is going to, is that one of the elements? Of, would love to know all in all what you look for in a founder, but they, that they're going to 
hands-on blood, sweat, and tears, they're going to be like all in on this company. Like there's no wishy-washy about it. It, Is that just like a rule? Is that normal for a founder? Would you say? Totally. Yeah. And it's especially, you know, I'm now focused on early stage investing and um, so much of early stage investing is about the people at the end of the day and about the founder. And so the, there's a couple things that I look for, and that's absolutely one of them. Um, you know, one of them is this um, tenacity and grit. You know, do they uh, look like someone who's going to run through mountains? Have they already tried to do that? You know, have they um, have they shown that some ingenue in terms of setting up a pilot, in terms of finding customers in non-obvious places, in securing partnerships through interesting networking angles? Like there are ways to kind of, even at the early stages, get under the surface and understand how someone is motivated and driven. So absolutely um, great founders do that. The second thing is, you know, pairing that with magnetism. Um, and it, that's something that I know um, I'm borrowing that word from uh, from Kirsten Green at Forerunner, but they, they look for magnetism and something we look for as well, which is really a catch-all for like, is this person compelling to other people? Will they, do they have magnetism to draw other people in, uh, to draw in first and foremost, a compelling team, to draw in other investors, to draw in potential uh, customers or partners? Um, you know, does this person not only have a lot of grit, but is a very likable magnetic person? And then the third is we, we call it um, founder market fit, but is this person uniquely put on this planet to run this business? Like, are they someone who graduated business school and was just kind of searching for something and then like kind of read, you know, a course book about healthcare startups and is just trying that now? Or is it somebody who has been working in digital health and advocacy for 10 years, has been on the um, payer side and is now starting a, you know, femtech telehealth company coming from that world? Like it's very... It's very obvious when somebody is built for the company that they are or not. Um, and so, and obviously in my case, like I wasn't necessarily. And so sometimes I think, wow, like what a chance investors took on me because it wasn't like I had this deep experience and was put on this planet for retail, but, um, but they must have seen, you know, other factors. So, so you, um, you know, you take all those things in, in concert together to think about, is this the right person for this opportunity? Well, tell us about Alpaca VC. Um, why is that a fit for you? Uh, I know that you led some investments in Teal and in Lex and in companies that are not fashion, <laughs> but they are tech infused. They do. I I, I, th- I see that kind of, um, yeah, commonality between some of the portfolio brands. Um, tell me about, yeah, what you guys invest in. Totally. Um so, and I can talk about fashion and I will promise you, I will invest in fashion. Don't, don't you worry. Uh, so, <laughs> so, um, so Alpaca, um, and the third general partner at Alpaca and Alpaca is an early stage fund focused on the intersection of the digital and physical worlds where people are using technology to transform daily life. And so we're, we're sort of generalists in that sense, but there's sort of two interesting things about the firm that drew me in and that I think are kind of our calling cards. One is all of us are former CEOs and operators. Uh, and so have this deep wealth of 
lived experience in terms of understanding the entrepreneur journey and also, um, you know, networks and experience to be helpful to other entrepreneurs that we back. Although there are increasingly and happily a lot of entrepreneur turned investors in the industry. Uh, and then the other is that we take a very research driven approach to how we invest in companies. So we conduct every quarter deep dives into a specific topic area where we think the puck is going in our relative spheres of influence, each partner. Uh, we publish those and as part of that research, we look at a market map, we look at where the white space is, we'll either uncover a company right through that research or we'll publish that research, you know, circulate with other investors, with uh, other entrepreneurs. And then hopefully when a deal comes across our desk, we say we have this prepared mind where we know exactly what we're looking for. We've already done the research and we can really quickly commit to something. Um, and so those are our field studies. And, um, and if you want, I can tell you about some of them, which are fashion related, which are coming out over the next couple of months, um, which, yes, you know, tell us. Okay. <laughs> So that'd be great. Yeah, I will tell you about those. And then I will also, if you want, I can touch on some of the investments that I did make. Um, so the exciting areas that I will be coming out with are, and I've made one investment in that's in stealth mode. Um, one is in the re-commerce space. So I'm actually um, publishing one of my field studies this week on the idea of re-commerce, which is really the reuse of goods, uh, most broadly speaking. And so for me, I've really not just invested in consumer facing companies, but also the tech enablement behind where all of this is going. And so for me, you know, we've had kind of re-commerce 1.0 with like eBay and Etsy. We have 2.0 with like managed marketplaces like the Real Real, Rent the Runway, um, which is obviously rental re-commerce um, and Poshmark, which is great, you know, obviously peer to peer. 3.0 to me is where the brands actually start to get involved, where the brands are saying, hey, we see all this happening. We want to get in on this. We want to own the customer journey. And so there's a lot of really interesting technology coming out in that space. Um, and so have been paying very close attention to that space. It's supposed to resale will 5x over the next five years. It'll grow at 11x the rate of regular retail. It's just where the world is going for a variety of factors, not just on the brand side, but just consumers, especially Zen, Gen Z are saying like, there's too much stuff. Like, We don't need more stuff. And so, um, so very excited about the re-commerce space and, and how to enable brands to get in on the act. Um, so, so have that space, have been looking a lot at live commerce. You know, I, th I think the future of, We've had the same UI UX where someone goes to navigate to a stale PVP forever. And so creating on-demand synchronous forms of interaction and commerce, I think, are the future. And so we've already started to see some of the early live commerce. I mean, live commerce is obviously huge outside the U.S., but we've seen now, you know, with the 20 million round for Pop Shop and some of these others, that live commerce is really starting to form here. Um, but I think it's just the early innings of that. You know, I think that the way that live commerce exists now on the pop shops and whatnots of the world is very much like a Q interactive QVC. But I think there's lots more ways that we can think about synchronous live commerce um, that go beyond that. And so have been digging into where is that white space and who's going to have interesting stuff. And so made an early bet there that uh, alongside Betaworks that will be announced shortly. 
Um, so you'll, oh, great. you will know about that one. Um, <laughs> and then just I'm so intrigued with that. Yeah. Like when are Americans going to catch on? Like, what is it going to take? Maybe just more, uh, accessibility, more, uh, interaction with, with that kind of technology. Um, but yeah, it's, it's coming. It's totally coming. And a lot of it is around what do your platform do? How do you create scarcity? in your products. And I think early days, the the products that have done that well, where I think toys and collectibles have done a good job in live commerce early days, networks did a great job with kind of streetwear and like art culture, where again, scarcity is like naturally embedded there. Um, I think luxury will follow. So like, I think there's, you know, I think factors around scarcity around the host also, like you need a really compelling host for live commerce. Um, and so the, the folks who can unlock really interesting hosts and draw their audience in, I think, will be interesting. I actually, we, and the reason I got so excited about that, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I don't know if it was Glossy or Digiday, I forget which publication it was, but we, Bone Drape actually won an award years ago for live commerce early. We were the best use of Instagram. So we were like one of the earliest people to create live shopping on Instagram where we would actually send people a custom link where they could check out after we would post a show every week. Um, so you are so ahead of your time. (laughs) (laughs) We are coming full circle here. Coming full circle, (laughs) but it is as well. Obviously you guys recognize my talents. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it's like, it's an area that I've, that I've believed in for a long time is is what I mean to say. (laughs) Nice. No, re-commerce live um, live shopping, live stream shopping. And was there a third one? Yeah, probably the one I'm, so I'm excited about there's on the supply chain side, I guess there's two that I'm interested in. Um, one is in returns. So I keep saying that returns are going to become a hallmark of a brand's experience the way that delivery is. So we've been all trained now that, you know, with Zappos and Amazon that like two day is is the gold standard. I got from Foot Locker, I actually earlier in the spring ordered Crocs. I don't know if you wear Crocs. Yes. It's so into I the Crocs. I love them, but I have yet to own oh, a pair. <laughs> I'm full unabashed Croc fan, two-wheel drive, so good. And um, and I ordered, the the color I wanted was at Foot Locker. It took six days to deliver them. And I was like, are they like in Egypt? Like, how is it taking them six days to deliver these? I was just... I was concerned about Foot Locker's supply chain. Um, and I think that's that wouldn't have been the case five years ago, but we've all sort of shifted to assuming two-day and free shipping. Um, I think the same will happen with returns. Um, customers will convert less if they know that there's a uh, non-lenient return policy. And if someone has a poor returns experience in terms of labels and packaging and processing, they won't return. And so... Uh, have been very interested in what are the, and there's lots that have been established there, but I still think there's room for kind of end-to-end solutions on the return side. Um, And then the last, which I'm calling out to anyone who, like I haven't seen that much in this space is cross-border. Like I think that, you know, the way that folks outside the U.S. can discover U.S. brands but not get them, and U.S. brands have so many fans internationally and cannot ship because of the complicated logistics and taxation networks, um, creates a lot of money left on the table. And so folks who can figure that out either from a brand 
logistics or tech standpoint to help with cross-border, like Passport's a good example. There are some early ones, uh, Wansfer is another interesting one that's like collating digital wallets. But um, I, I think that space is, is set to grow as we become this kind of global culture. Um, and so I'm on the lookout for those. Have not found anything that I want to invest in yet, but I think there's more to come. Attention, young founders, contact Aubrey Pagano. Um, <laughs> that's so smart. I think you're right. Hey, I, I will be following up on a story on that. Um, <laughs> that's really smart for sure. Well, you mentioned, um, I think that, I don't know if the word was mag- magnetic, but um, first of all, like a host on the live stream, a magnetic founder, um, does the founder need to be out there representing the brand? Um, you know, is there any workaround for that? Great. There are founders who are more in the background. And I think that's okay. I think everyone has their strengths and their secret sauce to what they do well. And so it's about focusing your time on what's going to be the most efficacious for the company. For me, for our brand, so much of it was about partnerships and press and speaking to our customer like she was a friend, like this millennial girl. And so I think we needed. It, we actually ended up getting the whole team involved in, in representing that. Um, but so we thought it was important for me to be out there. You know, I wore both. <laughs> actually, being an investor has been so fun because I've like, I've worn bone drape every day for like the past eight years. So it's like the first time where I just look in my closet and don't have to put on a sweatshirt, um, <laughs> which has been exciting. But like, but I think there are certain brands or products that cater to their customers where they need or can benefit from that voice. Um, I think there are others where it's okay. You know, um, like I actually think Michael at Everlane is not too much in the front. Like I think they tell, he's in, you know who Michael Praisman is when you like, you scratch the surface on articles, but Michael's not the front man out there telling Everlane's story about their, about radical transparency. And I think that's okay. So I think uh, is understanding what your customer needs from the brand and how you can augment the brand, you know, with that founder voice or not. For sure. Well, last question. You, you, we talked where fashion's going. Where is fashion moving on from? What will you not be investing in? What do you think is kind of dying down? Maybe mm. the pandemic drove this shift. Mm. Yeah. What's out? Great question. Uh, probably the number one thing for me is sustainability. If your brand is not sustainable on first principles, I believe you will be in the dust. Like, I don't think there's any new brand that can be started that does not think about its effect on the planet, about its supply chain, about how it treats its workers, about its packaging, um, which I'm happy to see that customers care about that. Um, it's definitely one of the things that Bone Drape we thought was so great about our supply chain was we everything was made on demand, so we didn't have a lot of waste. We had under 2% returns, because everyone, even though we offered full returns because people were super happy yeah. with their purchases because they were custom and felt like their own creation. And so, um, but I think now it's be, it's gone so beyond that in a, in a really great way. So to me, that's probably the number one thing is, is it's out to be a brand that in any way kind of abuses or exploits its supply chain. And I also don't think there's like a, in my opinion, I think, and this is more controversial. I don't know if people agree with me, but um, I think gone are the days where you have like a big catch-all brand that's everything to everyone. I don't think you have like a cover girl or a Victoria's Secret, or a, I don't know even what's it, a, a Hanes. Like, it's like, 
I think the internet has allowed culture to atomize in such a way that you can speak very specifically to a very vertical audience. And so I think being everything to everyone is just also out. I think speaking to a very specific audience and having an affinity and a community who you speak to is paramount. Yes, right on. I would agree. Controversy or no. (laughs) Right on, Aubrey. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for being here. This was so, so fun. Uh, Appreciate it. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy to talk to you and see you. (laughs) That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.